0: Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. On this week's podcast, The Hunger Games. As the government's callous stance on free school meals is well and truly catching fire, get it? Has it made a mocking jay of care and conservatism? Plus, this week's special guest, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley, Jess Phillips, gives us the lowdown on Covid, care, Jeremy and life in Parliament. And what's your political soundtrack? Our panelists trawl through their record collections, anyone under 20, ask your dad, that is, to discuss their favorite political records and the stories behind them. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome to this packed edition of the podcast. It is without doubt the biggest week of the year in British politics, because our sister podcast, Remaniacs, is changing. We can't campaign to remain in the EU, because we've already left, but the podcast formerly known as Rumaniacs will keep on fighting the good fight under a brand new name, with a brand new look, new features, new focus, albeit with the same rubbish panel making the same rubbish puns. All shall be revealed on this week's edition, and Romaniac's Patreon backers will be the first to find out. Until then, as the tension mounts unbearably, Let's meet the super forecasters of today's political sage committee. First up, welcome to recovering Labour spin doctor and Times radio host Aisha Hazarika.
1: Hello, hello.
0: <laughs> On Tuesday morning, it was reported that Sir Keir Starmer had been involved in a minor collision, away from the sort of all caps version in the sun. Is there anything to this?
1: Um, only it's the most exciting thing he's done all week. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, no drama, Starmer, you know, it's a bit of drama. It's a bit of, um, no, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't think there's anything more to it other than, of course, um, loads of people having a go at him for like having the temerity to own a car, which means he's obviously <laughs> red Tory scum. That was just Angela reno no need joking. Just-
0: also joining us, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Yasmin. Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court was confirmed on Tuesday. Is packing the courts at every level with right-wing activist Trump's real legacy? And what can a potential incoming Biden administration do about it?
2: I think it's a... Uh, well, first, hello, hello. Um, I think it's um, it's a huge, huge part of his legacy. I mean, even if we're just looking at the nation's highest court, the Supreme Court, I mean, he's managed... In, in just a single term to pick a third of its justices. And, you know, these are people with lifetime appointments who are going to be making really important decisions on all matters, like civil rights, environmental protections, business regulations. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a huge part of his legacy. And it's certainly something he's touted. And we've seen that not just at the Supreme Court, but indeed, kind of down the, the, the court system. As for what Biden can do about it, I mean, I suppose if he were to win, obviously, when when the time comes, he could also appoint justices. Um, But, you know, something that a lot of folks I think have been talking about in the U.S. is um, effectively Democrats doing their own form of court packing, specifically by increasing the number of justices in the Supreme Court. Now, it it should be said here, this is not totally my wheelhouse. I'm not a constitutional law expert. But what I do know from reading my colleagues at The Atlantic is that, you know, the the Supreme Court, the, the Constitution doesn't prescribe a set number. For the justices in the court, though it has been fixed at nine justices since around the 19th century, and that, you know, court packing of that kind, i.e. increasing the number of justices in the courts, I think until relatively recently was a pretty fringe idea, but -hmm. it's something that some advocates have been talking about. Basically as a way to restore the institutional legitimacy of the court. Now Biden mm. and Harris haven't committed to this at all, and I think the, the, la- the, the last I've heard of it is that Biden is saying that he would convene a commission to like study possible reforms of the court system at large. but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know it's, it, it goes without saying that you know these are massive appointments and they're going to have an impact long after Trump uh, leaves office, whether that's next week or, or in four years.
0: Some of the national polls narrowed slightly in for, favor of Trump. Other polls in key marginals are moving in the opposite direction for Biden. Um, with less than a week to go to the election, put your reputation on the line okay. and, and give us one name. Who will be the next president of the United States?
2: An American. No, I just To be honest, I... <laughs> I, I I think, you know, I, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I mean, 2016 threw me for a loop. I'm not making predictions because I remember the exact words my mom said to me after the last time, which was, I thought you knew what you were talking about. <laughs> so um, so I'm very humble now in, in the face of politics and my mother. Um, what I will say that what I am expecting, um, and this is something I will, you know, base my reputation on, is that we are going to see massive turnout historic turnout possibly in like a century to to date the last numbers i was looking at more than 60 million americans have already cast their ballots yes 65
0: i think at the last count which is extraordinary
2: it is and myself included i don't want to i don't want to tout myself but like you know americans are really coming out in droves and and you know this isn't just americans domestically i mean overseas voters who you know do not have a reputation for voting I think our the voting record in the last election was like seven percent they're voting way more than they usually do so I would you know I think this is poised to be a year for voter turnout particularly yeah. overseas voter turnout so I would look out for that I mean if anyone's going to win it'll hopefully be the American voter
0: <laughs> <laughs> last and by every means most we are delighted to be joined by Jess Phillips Jess is the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley and Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, which the grammar geek in me thinks should be for safeguarding and against domestic violence. But I digress. (laughs) Jess, let's get the big stuff out of the way. Was your weekend ruined by Leeds ending Villa's unbeaten run? Or are you still basking in the glow of that 7-2 victory over Liverpool?
3: Um, I mean, I basked in the glow in the sense that I had some builders in my house uh, on the, on the Liverpool, uh, after the Liverpool win <laughs> uh, and they seemed really chuffed about it and kept asking me to legislate for um, them to be able to go to matches again. I was raised a Villa fan by my dad I don't really care if I could be completely honest I'm not gonna be like David Cameron and pretend that I love football when I don't my husband's cousin played for the Villa he also played for the Blues and Wolverhampton Wanderers and West Bromwich so anywhere in the Midlands if I knock a door I have that one fact about football that my my Mm. husband is related to Kevin Phillips and that's enough to see me through
0: a family of football whores. Um, (laughs) You're the... (laughs) You're one of the very online MPs. In the last few days, you've done everything from comment on current affairs to reveal that your husband has made furniture that is also a Nintendo control system and muse about how old Darth Vader was when he died. Why do so many MPs get social media so wrong and hit so many bad notes? You seem to take to it like a duck to water.
3: Um, I think quite a lot of MPs don't do it themselves, maybe, is uh, one of the problems. Also, um, can you believe that Darth Vader was only 41 in the original? uh, (laughs) I just cannot believe that. I cannot believe that I'm married to a man older than Darth Vader. It's just unbelievable. I'm assuming the years are longer on Tatooine, because that can't be right. But uh, I, I just think... I don't know what it is. I think that you have to be willing to be not always just deadly serious about everything and hmm. to have a conversation. Lots of members of parliament and politicians, are so, they and Trump is a really good example of this, although to be fair, he's done pretty well on it. They use Twitter and Facebook and things as broadcast only. Um, this is me in front of X building. This is why I'm great. This is why I'm the best for your area it 's much, much better if you use it as a point of conversation and if you join in with things that people are having conversations about um, and all of my politics I think it tries to be as conversational as possible i don 't just tell my constituents things I ask them their views and it's very similar with twitter is that i will join in with so the nintendo game thing i was talking there was a woman she was showing something that her husband had done and i just couldn't believe that there was another person who had a table made uh, um, (laughs) into a nintendo controller and yet i have one and so two people in the world exist like that
0: amazing First up, the school meals debate seems to have left a very sour taste in the country's mouth, and little else. Last week, despite a small revolt, Conservative MPs squashed a Labour motion to extend free school meals over half-term and Christmas to Easter 2021. This was a red card to Marcus Rashford's campaign against child hunger and the food voucher schemes already introduced in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Tory MPs arrived home for recess to find their constituency offices covered in empty plates and placards, Rashford's petition nearing 900,000 signatures, and local businesses stepping in to do the government's job much to its embarrassment. Several of the people who voted against extending the scheme are expressing buyer's remorse and challenging the government to sort it out, or the next vote on the matter may not go so well. The Prime Minister, and ministers like Matt Hancock and Nadeem Zahawi, towards studios trying to repair the damage, full of praise for Marcus Rashford, so inspired and touched were they by his campaign that they all voted against it. Are they in danger of making eaten out to help out the new Maggie Thatcher milk snatcher? Aisha, Rashford's campaign has already forced one U-turn, with the Tories reversing their policy on meal vouchers over the summer holidays. Are we expecting the government to U-turn again?
1: Yes, I think they probably will. And even just as we are recording this, um, there are sort of rumours flying around um, Westminster that they're desperately trying to cobble something together because, you know, this is a huge problem for them. I spoke to a number of Conservative MPs over the weekend, actually interviewed one on my, my radio show, Stephen Crabb, and he said that definitely if Labour pushes this to a vote the next time more Conservative MPs would vote against the government. Mm. Because for many of these, um, particularly red wall Tories, these new Conservatives, their majorities are quite slim. And given that the Prime Minister's original message was unite the country and level up, this is the the absolute opposite. And that thing about Margaret Thatcher, you know, milk snatcher, that is looming large in people's minds, although she'd probably be quite proud. I think the lady would not be for spinning in her grave um, right now with this. So I I think there'll have to be some kind of change because even people who are pretty loyal to the government are behind the scenes saying this is just a fiasco. This is an absolute disaster. We have managed to unite literally the entire country
0: against us on this. I mean, what baffles me is that this was such an incredibly cheap, easy win for the government if they had moved quickly, and they're now in a position where even if they move, they will get very little credit for it because it will look like they were forced to. Why are they so bad at stakeholder management?
1: I think it's more than just being bad at stakeholder management. I think on this issue, there is um, there is an issue of ideology, and that does... I think, rest at the feet of the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. I mean, Rishi Sunak is very popular in the country because he has been given a load of money out. However true blue conservatives who believe in fiscal conservatism are really unhappy with the direction of travel um, from, from the Conservative Party. Their argument is, this is all the thin end of the wedge. And if you start giving out for school meals now, then the next thing will come along and you'll have to say yes to it. And remember that the ideology of the Conservative Party is to shrink the states, not to expand the states, to shrink Some other the state. hungry
0: peasant will want to eat Yes. Um, well, exa-
1: well, you know, you'll say next it'll be care in the community. Then it'll be looking after older people. Where will it end? A really nice society. <laughs> Where will it end? Where will it end? But, you know, you have to think, again, we have the same kind of political outlook. So to us, this is just like, this is just so re- But for, for for lots of conservatives, they are so obsessed about the state you know they want to shrink the state they want to shrink small children as well i know boris johnson wants us all to lose weight but like targeting nine-year-olds does seem a bit harsh to be honest <laughs> and today nadim zahawi was like going to be honest what what the kids are saying to us is they really like the activity clubs so it's like yeah foraging for food is so much fun it's so it's such fun such fun
0: yes when <laughs> mps like ben bradley tweet that food vouchers go to crack dens and brothels or Marcus Fish says he doesn't think that the government should be responsible for every child, do they realize the danger of rebuilding the nasty party brand? Do they care? Does it matter? Uh, They don't just not care. They're doing it on purpose.
3: It is entirely designed when they say things like, you know, school vouchers end up in crack dens or in brothels or say that people are trading, you know, sandwiches for heroin. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. But they're doing it on purpose. They know it's nonsense. I asked both um, two different MPs who cited um, that... These were being sold for drugs. I asked them for their evidence um, and none of them have been forthcoming. It's not based in any reality. They're doing it because they want to win the argument. And the only way they know how to win the argument is not with unity or with purpose or even, you know, sometimes starting on the back foot in an argument, you can still win it. They want to win the argument by divide and conquer. It's the only thing they know how to do. They know how to point at somebody else and say, look at those Romans. They're Mm. not like the people. They're not like you, the ordinary people in the country. And the reality is, is that the ordinary people in the country, lots of them, rely on free school meals they don't want them to think of themselves as the people who are uh, the government are attacking so they have to create an other and that that other was the European Union for a long time that other will be immigrants and this other had to be you know somebody who couldn't kick back and so they went for people um, who suffer from substance misuse massively turning back the clock on all that stuff for the last However many years of Tory rule, they have tried to make out like they care about mental health and let's talk about it. Let's, you know, we understand there's a mental health crisis. Let's not have stigma. And immediately in one fell swoop, they basically went, oh, let's look around for some people with really chronic mental health problems and let's blame them.
0: I mean, I was struck by how much of a leap to old Tory school obsessions this was. The weirdest example of which was Brendan Clark Smith saying he's against nationalizing children. What did you make of that?
3: I thought it was absolutely hilarious. The idea that feeding children nationalises them um, is is quite something that's, you know, like saying, you know, I've been to, uh, for example, on a parliamentary delegation to China where I was fed dinner. Uh, so I assume that I'm now owned by China. Um, to be
1: honest, bad. Jess, we have had our suspicions for quite a while. <laughs>
3: about you. Me yes. and the Politburo. Yeah. Um, but,
1: yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, as if there aren't
3: other universal services for children. Mm. There are. There, I mean, school, for example. Um, I mean, school is nationalising children. and um, What I think is absolutely phenomenal over the past couple of uh, years, so I, I've led a campaign uh, around school cuts because my own son's school started to have to cut the hours and actually 27 schools in Birmingham had to cut their hours so that children were only in school for four and a half days uh, a week instead of five days a week and what I found phenomenal when with the arguments that I got back from sort of true blue Tories was this idea that you know they were still getting enough schooling and you know we should be grateful for what they were getting and I just thought for the first up, people have such low expectations and standards that they're not shocked by something that has existed since Victorian times, the mm-hmm. idea that children go to school five days a week, that they are more than happy to revert to genuinely Dickensian arguments about how my children should be grateful for any schooling at all.
0: To your knowledge, are drug dealers in your constituency accepting cheese and pickle sandwiches and bags of hula hoops as payment. I'm just asking for a friend.
3: Um, uh, not, not so best I know that drug dealers are, yeah, you know, a sort of multi-pack of uh, Monster Munch goes down an absolute <laughs> Do you know treat.
1: what? I'd rather swap drugs and get the sandwich to be on <laughs> <laughs> the stage I've got to.
3: <laughs> it's an absolute nonsense. It's a total nonsense. It's based on nothing and it, they're just doing it to be awful.
0: Yasmin, the deserving and undeserving poor is a favorite trope of the right wing on both sides of the Atlantic, yet politicians on the right never seem to find any deserving poor. Funny that. Um, Is there any practical way to combat this politics of resentment?
2: It it is just, yeah, it's a weird phenomenon. I mean, because it's funny when I was thinking, you know, about this, like who who the right in the US, and in this case, the Trump administration speak to, I mean, during his election, he, you know, he was kind of claiming to speak for, you know, for the forgotten Americans, these people who are left behind um, in the evolving economy, and who might be struggling, but you know, they they don't really, you don't really kind of see evidence that, that the administration kind of re- responds to these needs in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think back to 2018 when the UN did that report that concluded that you know there are 18 million Americans uh, who are in extreme poverty and and the Trump administration effectively responded and said that you know that that figure is exaggerated and that you know the number is closer to like a quarter of a million as though to say and and this would be ideal that you know in in one of the wealthiest countries in the world that that level of poverty just cannot exist but but as for you know how to combat it I mean, Gosh, I, I don't know. I think there's this pervasive, and it, and it could well be on this side of the pond as well, this like pervasive pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that I think just kind of really hinders things. I mean, I don't know if, if any of you all have seen, but there's a, a video clip making the rounds on Twitter of Jared Kushner, uh, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, talking about how the president's policies, particularly vis-a-vis Black Americans suffering from wealth gaps and racial inequality inequality, that these have been, you know, some of the best policies, but he goes on to basically imply that those who haven't benefited from the, the policies are the problem. Um, he said that, you know, the president can't want them to be more successful than they want to be successful. Um, and of course, not only does this, you know, trade on, on really racist stereotypes, but it also kind of puts the onus on the people struggling. And, and I think that might kind of be the, the sort of argument that you hear that that folks who really need this help well, effectively it's just their fault.
0: Yes, if, if there ever was a story of triumph over adversity, it's Jared Kushner's, isn't it?
2: <laughs> exactly. I know, it was, just, it was this really ironic thing where you were like, okay.
0: To think they made a film about that deadbeat Gandhi when there's a story like Jared that hasn't been told.
2: <laughs> and
1: also, he's so there's something so creepy about him, you know, it's like I've, all of them, he is the creepiest. Yes. He stands. He stands really
3: weirdly, like he's got a big chest. Uh, it's really weird. I find him very, very, very yeah odd. He's, he's a strange boy.
0: He looks like he should have a mound of plastic instead of genitals where everything ought to be. Um, <laughs> the, the, Yasmin, the same people who sentimentalize children are often fine with children suffering. Qanon followers claim they're fighting imaginary paedophiles, yet they're happy for kids to be separated from their parents. It's a sort of, uh, we'll do anything for kids, just not these kids and these kids and these kids' message. Is there a similar disconnect here? Mm.
2: I mean, you know, I think it's supposed I suppose it comes down to who who they empathize with ultimately. I mean, for for those who ascribe to the QAnon conspiracy, which for for those who who have had the privilege of not hearing about it, is um basically believing in this kind of international cabal that traffics children, and and I think kind of in like Monsters Inc esque sort of feeds on their blood. I, I never really understood it, but it sounded very like feeding on the laughter and happiness of children, which sounds very Pixar to me. But anyway, um you know, they, they the, the hashtag save our children became something of a rallying cry um, in QAnon circles. Not because I don't think that, you know, every QAnon supporter knows someone who has been affected by child trafficking, but rather because it's an issue that they fundamentally believe affects them or indeed could affect them. And and I think that's the difference. I mean, you don't see that same outrage when it comes to things like 545 children being separated from their parents and the government not, be, not being capable of reuniting them again, um, which leads me to think that, you know, Perhaps those who support the president's policies on this issue just don't see it as something that affects them. Mm. Whereas, you know, this kind of broader idea of Save Our Children, you know, you can impart that sort of theoretical ideal anywhere where, you know, it suits
0: you. Jess, beyond Rashford, what are local councils and businesses currently doing to fill the gap? left by central government have you seen examples in your constituency
3: yeah well i've been out all morning in fact uh, helping with sort of gathering and delivering of food um which i have to say when i stood for election in 2015. I didn't, I didn't, I genuinely didn't expect hunger to be one of the most important parts of my job, and yet here we are. Birmingham City Council, like lots and lots of Labour and some Conservative councils across the country, sort of decided that they would, they would do step up where the government had failed, and so Birmingham City Council have put in place. Um, voucher schemes over the, the holiday but businesses I mean there's a there's a brilliant sort of street food market that exists in the centre of Birmingham which obviously can't be going on at the moment all of the different um, vendors that were there they have all got together to feed the children in a part of Birmingham called Birmingham Northfield, um, which is actually not called Birmingham Northfield, that's the name of the constituency. No-one in Birmingham Northfield has ever once referred to it as Birmingham Northfield (laughs) in the history of ever. It's just called Northfield. Northfield has the highest rate, I think, in the country, um, certainly in England and certainly in the city of children with free school meals, but it has a Conservative MP who voted against the the Labour motion to feed the children over the, the, the holiday period. And so Digbeth Dining Club and all of these different vendors have got together and yesterday they made 300, they fed 300 people 900 meals and these are small sort of, you you know, running out of a van. Size businesses that all got together with the local Labour councillors in Northfield um, and lots and lots of volunteers um, uh, to help deliver food in that area. So there is a huge amount of that sort of thing going on, and all the local churches, mosques schools, charity groups are all stepping up. I've been dropping off food at various different places all, all um, weekend and uh, yesterday and today and we'll continue to do that throughout the week mm. because people, I think people, there's two things about it. People want to help and they want to feel that they can do something and we're in lockdown here in Birmingham um, and so I think as well people want to st- get that sense of being part of it again because of the tier system that exists now people's experiences are completely different across the country and Mm -hmm. that sort of idea of togetherness hasn't been there whereas you know this was an opportunity for us to feel together Um, but also I think people want to show the government up I think that a lot of those businesses coming out I mean McDonald's Uh, came out and said oh well we'll do it Um, and all these lots of big and small businesses they wanted to say on Friday Thursday last week they didn't just want to say we think this needs to be done they wanted to say we're better than this you know we're better than this and that that is as much you know some of it will be PR but I also think that there is this real sense that people don't want people to know that then that doesn't represent their views
0: When I was researching today's guest, Jess Phillips, it seemed unfathomable. She was first elected to the Commons in 2015. She has built such a reputation as one of the most outspoken figures of the parliamentary estate that it feels as if she has been a fixture of our politics for a lot longer. She's currently the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding and has also written two books in her spare time from slaying Twitter trolls. Um, Jess, COVID has changed everything. How did the virus and the resulting lockdown affect your work as an MP?
3: Oh, it's been massive, massively different um, in in a really, really bad way, I have to say. In the beginning, gosh, I feel like I'm reading from the Bible. Um, (laughs) In the beginning, it felt really sort of positive and very 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 busy like uh, caseloads went up massively and people didn't know where to turn and there was a huge amount of sort of resilience in the system but now sort of six seven months on from that it feels uh, it feels as if my job in both Westminster and uh, in Birmingham is being neutered Uh, quite severely I would say by the coronavirus crisis I can't knock on people's doors I can't open my office which is normally open like an advice centre to the public at all times Uh, so I'm not I'm not getting the same sense Of what people's lives are like. Now, I live in my constituency, so, uh, you know, I get it as much as any other citizen going on the school run, being in the shops and things. But I feel, I can feel a growing disconnect between me and my constituency. You're not
0: hearing the stories, basically. Yeah, I'm not. not Your area is in tier um, two at the moment, isn't it?
3: It is. It is. So we're not allowed to go around to each other's house. We haven't been allowed to go around to each other's houses for a long time. Yeah, uh, we're not allowed to meet in um, in pubs and things. So, but also, it means my office is not open. Now, my office, Yardley, um, at the height of the. the the first phase of the pandemic had the second worst death rate in uh, the country lots of my staff live in the community and stuff and so I have to constantly have this debate about whether actually we need to open the office and have people in again because the need is so great versus maintaining the safety of the population that I serve um, and the staff who work for me and it is really really difficult I am at the point now where it's a sort of like going cold turkey from the bit of your job that you absolutely loved. And now I'm starting to have terrible withdrawal uh, symptoms mm. from it because I, I feel that I'm becoming a less good politician by not being as well connected with the people who essentially employ me. Um, And that is, I'm finding that quite difficult. And in Westminster, the the level of neutering that the virus has done means that it is very stilted. the, The debate, although this week was considerably more robust, I would say, There is an element that the government control absolutely everything and Parliament has very little role and lots of Conservatives have complained about that as well. So we're just sort of, these decrees come down and and what we saw with uh, Boris Johnson um, sort of squaring up to the people of Manchester. Yeah. It certainly makes it feel like we are we are being run ragged by an executive, and there is very little parliamentary opportunity to to cut through to that. It feels
0: fragmented, so it, doesn't it? it, it and, does, and
3: that's why I think people like Marcus Rashford, you know, the 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 idea that he had a platform beyond that normal level of scrutiny to use to make them do something, that's going to be really deeply important until Parliament is back as it
0: should be. Yeah. So you know the 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 showdown with Manchester and uh, just in the last couple of days um, 50 Tory MPs have written to the government implying their current policy looks a lot like the opposite of levelling up. Are yeah. the Conservatives now beginning to experience the same phenomenon of trying to hold together two really different voting blocks that Labour have been grappling with for decades?
3: Yes, I think that they are. I, I remember speaking to Anna Soubry about two, three years ago. She was saying, you know, it's coming down the line for us, no two ways about it. And she mm. was absolutely right. I think that what we've seen this week with some, I, I'm, I'm actually, I was really pleased to see that letter from Conservatives, um, certainly ones who represent the North, because one thing that I have not been able to fathom throughout the whole coronavirus crisis, throughout the Dominic Cummings, throughout the, the all of the things That Boris Johnson has done that seems so awful that I I can't. The people I walk amongst in Westminster, the conservatives who I am friends with, some of them, I I cannot believe that they are sitting by and just allowing certain things to happen and sitting on their hands while terrible decisions are made. Mm. I Just I I cannot believe how little rebellion and how little speaking up has gone on uh, in their own side. And it makes me question them. And I I find myself being constantly surprised that uh, I say to my husband, like, oh, you know, I can't believe they're letting this happen. And he's just like, oh, gosh, when will you learn? When will you learn <laughs> that they're, they're, they're not like us is essentially he's like, you know, they, they're going to let it happen because they don't think the same way as you, Jess. But lots of them do. And so I was pleased to see some people fighting back a bit this week.
1: In terms of how the Labour Party is doing, how do you think Keir Starmer is getting on? And how do you think the Labour Party should frame its attacks against not just Boris Johnson but the person who could be taking over from Boris Johnson Rishi Sunak. I don't know if you've seen this attack advert that went out, which is just I've
3: only seen the first like few frames of it to be honest. But yeah.
1: I mean it's basically having a go at him for being rich. And what Uh, what kind of alarmed me about that is let's be honest, people have got no problem (laughs) for voting for somebody rich. They've done it in America, they've done it here many, many times. Now, that that advert wasn't put out by the Labour Party, it has to say. But how do you think Labour should be framing its attacks, particularly against Rishi Sunak, because he may well be the guy that uh, Keir Starmer goes up against at the next general election?
3: I mean, if I had to attack Rishi Sunak, I would attack him on the fact that he's not very good. Um, he's not a very good politi- uh, performer, I don't think. Um, I, I, he's... He has very little presence uh, in Parliament, although I would say exactly the same um, about uh, Boris Johnson. But I mean, Rishi Sunak's speech to the conference, was it? I know it's weird because they're doing it to an empty hall. I just found him to be totally flat. And Rishi Sunak is only popular because he's giving out taxpayers money. I think that we need to, you know, sort of remember all that in that eat out to help out scheme i would go to restaurants and it would have his name on the menu it would be like cheers rishi and things like that i think people need to be reminded that rishi sunak is not spending his own money he's spending our money and that it's it's a a bizarre thing that he has been considered to be some sort of savior i think he's had a rough week I don't think that necessarily attacking him for being successful is a particularly good uh, idea, or, or, or necessarily rich, because, as you say, people seem to love a rich person. Um, but that he won't ever suffer from any of the decisions that he makes, I think is a point worth pointing out. Mm. And I find that a lot in politics, is that the people who make the decisions, it will make absolutely zero difference to their lives their families' lives when these decisions get made and they make them in a cavalier way because of that um but you know I think that I think that Rishi Sunak doesn't need the Labour Party to attack him he's got um Gavin Williamson and no doubt the other (laughs) people who'll be circling their wagons around to try and topple him I think maybe just let them sort of do their dance because they'll get rid of him if they think he's a threat
2: Jess, in your maiden speech back in 2015, uh, you spoke very passionately about improving Britain's response to victims of domestic and sexual violence. Um, and obviously, I know that I think it's it's been written rightly uh, a lot about how you know domestic violence has been on the rise this year with the pandemic. Um, I think it's something that the UN called the shadow pandemic. I'm wondering, as the shadow minister uh, for domestic violence and safeguarding, how you think this kind of this Parliament is handling this issue. I mean is it a bipartisan issue do you think and and what are the key things that you think need to be focused on?
3: It isn't a bipartisan issue necessarily because you know I I think I, I like to think that a bar about five people I could think of everybody in the House of Commons regardless of which rosette they wear thinks that we should try and reduce domestic abuse and sexual violence so in that regard it's it's not we, we usually can find consensus when discussing the sorts of policies where ideology comes into play with this issue and where they frequently get it wrong in uh, my view is when they refuse to recognize it as being a gendered crime mm. uh being a crime that specifically uh, and it Happens because of the power and control systems that we live in that largely affect and mainly affect women and children um, because of their lesser position in society. That sort of argument will fall on deaf ears in Parliament in with lots and lots and lots of Conservatives. And I will be in rooms again and again and again throughout the rest of my career where I will be reminded about the plight of what happens to men. As if I don't know, as if I haven't run services for those people, which I have for many years before I was in Parliament um, and still today with my constituents. Until they accept that the reason that domestic and sexual violence happens is because of women's lesser economic power, because of their lesser social capital, because of their, just frankly, have less power in society, they're not going to challenge it. Um, We're not going to change it. We're going to keep on having to put a sticking plaster over the top of it. Um, And I'm afraid to say that the ideology at the moment, I, I see it going even more, into the the idea that it is interpersonal violence rather than gender based violence.
0: It's fair to say you weren't uh, Jeremy Corbyn's biggest fan. Um, what do you think his legacy will be?
3: Uh, well, maybe we're going to find out in the coming weeks uh, what some of the, the legacy will be with the reporting of the uh, Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission report onto anti semitism being. Um, Uh, published this week um, and I think that that will be the sort of worst element of uh, the legacy of the Corbyn era. I'd say that the upside of Jeremy Corbyn's legacy is um, I think that the Labour Party will probably learn, uh, well I hope it will learn, that there is something about the idea of the Labour Party being, having an element of insurgency um, and an element of rebellion always. And I think that it shocked everybody so much when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader. They sort of didn't know where it came from, whereas actually I think it had probably been bubbling up for quite some time. The idea that we are not here to conserve, but to, in in lots of ways, to rebel against what we are given um, as if it is good enough I think is something that Jeremy Corbyn showed us we shouldn't take our eye off that particular ball in the future.
0: Behind the stories of rising COVID cases and tighter lockdowns across the north of England, there's disturbing evidence that the government's easing of national restrictions might have been doubly irresponsible because in cities like Liverpool, Nottingham and Manchester, cases never fell to the levels they did in the rest of the country. In short, the virus never really went away. Liam Thorpe is the political editor of the Liverpool Echo. He talked to Andrew Harrison about the perfect storm that left Liverpool vulnerable, to a devastating second wave of COVID, and who's responsible?
4: Liam, you've written a huge investigation for The Echo on the circumstances that have turned Liverpool into a second wave hotspot. Uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam confirmed that cases in the north hadn't come down before the government started unlocking in the summer. Was that the case in Liverpool? Why was that the case in Liverpool?
5: Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case in Liverpool. Um, there's definitely a feeling in places in the northwest, like Liverpool and Manchester, that when it came to locking down in, in the first instance, in the first wave, um, it, it was done because London and other areas were really, really suffering. Uh, I think we were around two weeks behind, maybe, the capital um, in terms of our infection levels. And obviously, the decision was taken. This time around, when it came to sort of the ju- the big July reopening, it, it is now very apparent that the the virus hadn't really gone away. It hadn't it hadn't been brought down to a low enough level in places like Liverpool and Manchester. Um, and uh, across the board now, I think it's kind of accepted. Um, scientifically, you've seen Professor Van Tam. We've had local um, doctors, the chair of the CCG, Fiona Lemons here, saying that it's definitely the case that there was just a too high prevalence of the virus around when the kind of great unlocking happened. Um, and perhaps, you know, Liverpool is suffering now for allowing London's economy to to have a, another chance. So if, if Liverpool's cases were, a bit, were behind London's um, and,
4: and other sorts of areas, perhaps closer to, to government, why was that? And, you know, is is there a particular reason that why cases had stayed so high over the summer when they had come
5: down in London and elsewhere, you know, during, well, supposedly, when we were all locked down? I think from from what, the scientists are saying it's about the the journey of the epidemic. So, you know, we were we were behind London, and then ours our sort of epidemic played out, you know, sort of behind uh, London's, if you were, if you will. I think there's other factors involved, definitely, uh, and the the investigation I did um, looks a bit a bit at some of those other factors in terms of kind of the, the prevalence and the spread and the continued spread, uh, you know, a, a lot involving kind of intergenerational households and things like that. Undoubtedly, there are, Liverpool has had issues with people not not doing the right thing, um, like many other cities. There have been some gatherings that have been some issues. Um, but I think that's one factor. I think the, the, the journey of the epidemic is is one of the is what the scientists are kind of referring to. Um, we were just further behind in the journey. And then when it came to reopening, we weren't far enough along in terms of suppressing the virus.
4: So how how has that information not made it to the decision makers? Because you would imagine that you know cities across the north have been the focus of policymaking for the past you know two weeks, three weeks. Why was that information not coming into government decision-making while it was happening, that, that that the cases hadn't gone down?
5: I mean, it's not like it wasn't being raised. I remember doing a, covering a press conference with Andy Burnham, the Greater Manchester Mayor, and, and Steve Rotherham, the, the Liverpool City Region Mayor, back in June, who were both saying that they thought that the virus was was still too prevalent in their regions and that they thought it was too early to start thinking about unlocking they were not listened to. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, they were overruled, and it was it was obviously Boris Johnson billing it as this great big kind of unlocking of, of the country. So it was being raised, you know, a, a, as as at higher level as possible in these regions. Um, whether you know whether government saw that and ignored it, I, I obviously don't know. But it certainly doesn't help with the kind of feeling that our our health and our uh, well being in this part of the country is is of less importance. Um, focus has been very much on Manchester this week uh, and the past couple of weeks. What's what's the
4: mood amongst people in Liverpool now? How, how are people feeling? Are they feeling, you know, pessimistic? How long do they think it's going to be
5: before they're going to be out of tier three? I don't think anyone here is is expecting anything other than um, for our restrictions to continue. We've had a, a slight drop in the infection rate, which is obviously to be welcomed, um, which could potentially suggest that some of the restrictions are are starting to have an effect. We have seen, you know, it's happened over a continued a uh, little period where the infection rate have dropped sadly though for many people the, the the damage has been done because so many people have now been become very ill and there's what we call baked in infections which is people who who became ill before any restrictions came in you know say sort of 10 days 2 weeks ago who we then know are going to go on to become very unwell so i think the situation in the hospitals is is deeply deeply worrying liverpool has more admissions for covid than anywhere in the country and I think, of course, that, you know, the city is, is, is deeply hurt by this. You know, it's a city that hates to see its, its fellow scousers in trouble, in pain. Uh, I think there's a lot of people upset. Um, and hopefully that kind of, you know, resilience that Liverpool has had to show over, over many decades will, will be, you know, well, it will be essential in helping the city to get through
0: this really, really dark period. Songs about politics have always been in the public consciousness. To paraphrase Tom Waits, we like beautiful melodies telling us terrible things. We thought we should find out what our panel's favorite political records are and what special meaning they hold for them. We're going to make a short playlist from them too. Yasmin, what's your political soundtrack of choice?
2: Um, I chose Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone, which is like one of the most um kind of i think I think I can rightly say famous songs from the civil rights era. Mm. And yeah, I learned about it uh, at at school where where all good things are learned. I was a sophomore at the University of Southern California. And um, my professor, Shauna Redmond, who I believe now teaches at the school across town, which we will not name. Uh, anyone from <laughs> California will know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, she'd written a book called Anthem, which explored the role of song in social protest movements across the African diaspora. And so, you know, when I when I thought political song, I thought of this song initially. But it, what it really is is a protest song, and a really powerful one at that. It has um kind of really like kind of sort of show tuny vaudeville vibes, but um the the subject matter is actually quite dark, and was written um, allegedly. Legend has it, in an hour, um, in response to both the 1963 assassination of the civil rights leader Medgar Evers in Mississippi, but also the murder of four African-American girls uh, by white supremacists in a church bombing in Birmingham. So yeah, if you listen to it, you'll see, you know, the kind of the classic lines are Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee's made me lose my rest, but everybody knows about Mississippi. goddamn." You know, these are like mm. injustices so familiar at the time that they hardly needed to be stated. Uh, so yeah, it's a great song. I, I highly recommend it.
0: Jess, I understand you're a 90s hip-hop fiend. (laughs) How how did you get into that? Uh, Well, I was a teenager in the 1990s,
3: uh, (laughs) and like all, uh, you know, sort of (laughs) urban kids felt that, you know, that the 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 hip hop of the east coast of America really truly represented our experiences, but yeah, I, I was a big I was a big hip hop fan. Uh, I still am. Uh,
0: Do you have any fetus in full sort of della soul baggy pants? And will all you? I can say is I'm <laughs> very
3: very glad that. For, Camera photos did not, you know, didn't, that didn't exist when I was a kid. The idea that people had their phones everywhere. I'm very, very glad that none of my time was ever monitored. However, I <laughs> did once go and see Della Soul, and I swear to God, they were singing directly at me. I, I still feel this to, to this day. That I was the main focus of the in the audience for this. <laughs> so what, I'm going to take that to my uh, to my
0: grave. <laughs> so what's your what's your political record of stories?
3: So I mean, I w- I would have. Um, I was also thinking of having a, a Nina Simone song, but I won't now that, uh, <laughs> which is um, the the song I wish I knew how to be free, which I absolutely love and represents so much stuff about how I feel. I felt working in women's refuges. But I would uh, pick, and for the reason I would pick this is because it, there's a video that was made during the abortion referendum in Ireland um, that was encouraging women to go home to vote. In, in fact, encouraging everyone to go home to vote uh, on behalf of the women of Ireland. And if I watch this video within the first few seconds, I will cry. And the the, the song on it, and it. I grew up with uh, my father as is Irish and I grew up with the sort of Irish folk protest songs being played to me mm. throughout my childhood. And it is the song Bread and Roses is on this video and the Irish woman singing on the video, it is... It is it. I don't know what it is about Irish people singing, but it will just hit your soul immediately, the idea of the struggle and the sort of melancholy. But the message in the, in the song Bread and Roses is that you can't have a revolution if you don't have the women involved in the revolution, that actually the rising of the women is the rising of us all.
0: Who's, who's the artist?
3: Um, so the, the one I listened to on Spotify is, uh, I don't know if, I think it, they actually just had a woman to sing it on this particular video that they had got, but the one I listened to is by a woman called Judy Collins.
0: Great. Aisha, what hits your soul directly?
1: Well, it's actually interesting that Jess mentioned about the, the, the power of the Irish when it comes to a protest song, because I think Zombie by the Cranberries is like an incredibly um, powerful song. I mean, that's about the um, the I.R.E bombing, but you know, um she just has the most haunting voice. But the the, the, the political song, I mean I am very much like Jess, very much nineties kind of thing, although I'm more kind of indie than probably sort of hip hop. <laughs> but for me it was like the cheesiest song there is, but it's always a floor filler and you know all the words to it and it's gotta be common people. Paul because I think that is just so enduring I think what's so clever about that song is that the the politics are absolutely bang on there's a lot of the thing about sort of oh yes we're going to kind of come and save you the working class and we want to try and pretend to be you because we think you're cool Um, and it's a sort of almost like a sort of fashion accessory but we don't really know anything about your lives and I think that is very very true of decades um, of politics uh, both obviously on the right but also on the left let's be honest um but it was it was it was worn very lightly i mean everybody jumps up and down to that song everybody knows the lyrics they don't understand that they're singing a great political protest song
0: yeah it's it's sort of It doesn't hit you over the head. I've gone old school, so uh, because uh, regular listeners will know my obsession with opera. Uh, So Giuseppe Verdi wrote a string of really revolutionary anthems. Northern Italy was under Austrian occupation in the early part of the 19th century. And Verdi kept approaching these subjects of oppressed people disguised in different historical contexts and churning out the most subversive, rise-up themes, from uh, Eleanor's courage now, courage in Ivespre Siciliani, to Macbeth's chorus, of Patria Oppressa, to Odabella telling Attila the Hun that Italian women were going to whoop his ass so much so that the Austrian authorities banned anchors, terrified they may incite riots. The most famous example is Vapensiera, the chorus of the Hebrew slaves in Nabucco, which became the unofficial anthem of the Risorgimento. And the swelling line behind O mia patria si bella O my country, so lovely and so lost, is profoundly comforting to me because it reminds me that people occasionally lose their way but that the process of progress is ultimately irresistible. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our panel, Aisha Hazarika.
1: Uh, thank you very much for having me.
0: Yasmin Sirhan. Thank you. And our lovely guest, Jess Phillips. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and a full-length show this time next week. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you sponsor us, you'll get goodies, early access to the dailies, and a shout-out on the show, and it will sound something like this.
1: Thank you and best wishes from me to Mark Howson, Jane Elloway, and Viv Huddy.
2: Hello, and many thanks from me to David Bingham, Michael Parker Bray, and Matt Gordon Smith.
0: And goodbye and thanks from me to JL Robertson, Mike P., and Alice Gordon. We'll see you all next time.
5: The Bunker was presented by Alexandre with Yasmeen Sahan and Aisha Hazarika. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofraniewicz. An audio production was by me, Alex Rees. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.